Good morning, guys. Yeah, y'all can go ahead and grab a seat. How's everyone doing this morning? Yeah, we're doing good. Right on. Sweet. Uh, If we've not met yet, my name's Gentry. I'm on the pastoral and teaching team here at Ethos Church Hillsborough Village. Um, Josh, our campus pastor, is still out on paternity leave. Him and his wife Leah had a baby a couple weeks ago, and so they're still at home resting and just living into that just glorious beauty of newborn life. But I know that Josh dearly misses you all and wants to be back with you all and is eager to get back here and stand up here and teach, but also just to sit with you all. This morning, we're gonna be in Philippians chapter one. If you have a Bible that you'd like to open up, you can go ahead and open up there to Philippians chapter one. We have been in a teaching series where we're kind of walking through the book of Philippians, this, what we're calling exploring Paul's letter to the church in Philippi that he planted nearly 10 years earlier. And this morning, we're going to be in verses 20 through 26. Uh, if, does someone have their Bible open that would like to read verses 20 through 26 of Philippians chapter 1 for us this morning? A brave soul. Bring it on, man. Let's do it. Right. Yep, Philippians chapter 1, 20 through 26. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Thank you so much, man. What is the meaning of life? The age-old question, right? A question that philosophers through all of history have attempted to answer. Every civilization that has been on planet Earth. And it's really what philosophy is in some degree, isn't it? Trying to answer the big questions in life. The biggest being, what is this all about? If you ask Aristotle or Confucius, the meaning of life is virtue. To the ancient Greek hedonists, it was simply to eat, drink, and be merry, to have a good time. And for the nihilists, there is no meaning. It's all just a happy accident. And today, in our society, in our culture, it's all subjective. You decide for yourself what the meaning of life is for you. Is it your career? Wealth, success, your family, being a good person, human progress, or is it simply to catch the NBA finals? It's a question that we all have asked at some point, 
right? Maybe you're asking that question now, here, today. Maybe you've already answered that question without even realizing it. Today, we get to explore one of Paul's most well-known lines in the book of Philippians and the title of the series, To Live is Christ. Paul, as we've mentioned already many times through this series, he's writing from a prison in Rome. And two weeks ago, we talked about this supernatural posture that Paul has in his situation sitting in prison, that he doesn't see his imprisonment as an obstacle, as something hindering him, but as an invitation deeper into the way of Jesus. And now this week, we get to a part where Paul, he looks forward to his future, a future that only has two potential outcomes. One, to be released from prison, sent on his way, continue, free to continue to preach the gospel, or to be put to death for preaching that very gospel. Those are the two options Paul has before him. And again, Paul's disposition here seems strange to say the least. Not only is Paul at peace about his current circumstance of imprisonment, but he's at peace looking forward to an unknown and potentially lethal future. Both of which he seems completely fine with. He says, to live is Christ. It means fruitful labor. I get to go on living with and living for Christ. We can, we can kind of, that makes sense. We get that. But to turn around and say, to die is gain. I mean, what is wrong with this guy? Right? He seems to have some sort of death wish on him, but somehow not in a dark or grim way but with a hope of a bright future where others would only see the great darkness of the void of death. What is going on here with Paul? This morning, we get to dig deeper into Paul's famous statement in verse 21. And we're gonna take it in kind of three parts this morning. Part one, that to live is Christ. Part two, to die is gain. And part three, Christ magnified. So part one, to live is Christ. Has anyone else ever been confused by this phrase? Like show of hands, has this ever like confused you? Like what do you mean here, Paul? To live is Jesus? Like that doesn't actually, that doesn't make any sense as a sentence. I'm pretty sure to live means that like I have breath in my lungs and a beating heart in my chest. I'm pretty sure to live means that I am alive, living. Isn't that what it is to live? So Paul's obviously not speaking about literal biological life here. And notice that Paul doesn't simply say to live is Christ. He says, for me. To live is Christ. For me, it's personal. For Paul, to live is Christ. He's revealing this personal conviction and feeling, and one that I think that God desires for all of his children to relate to 
and to hold deeply, sharing in this sentiment with Paul. For Paul to live is Christ. For you to live is what? For you to live is to play music, to catch the game, to be outside, to live is a great meal or a good glass of wine. Fill in the blank. For me to live is what? And if we're honest with ourselves, how many answers would we give before we even think to say Christ? For Paul, it's the first answer. In fact, I think it's actually even more than a first answer. For Paul, this is more of a knee-jerk reflex than it is a thought-out answer to a question. It's the cry from deep within Paul's soul, the very center and essence of what it means to be alive for Paul. One biblical scholar comments, he says, Paul's whole life revolved around Jesus Christ. Jesus' work on the cross had become the reason for all that Paul did, and appreciation for Christ motivated him. For Paul, Christ was like the sun around which his whole life orbited. Like the sun in our solar system, Christ was the very center of Paul's life and all of life was ordered around that central force of gravity. What does your life orbit around? What's the thing in our life that everything else has to move out of the way for? That everything else has to take a back seat to? That everything else has to bow down to? An easy way to figure that out is to look at our schedule and what are the non-negotiables in our schedule? That if we're honest, sometimes Jesus gets the back burner for Oh, I can't be in a house church. The kids' sports schedule is just way too much. I don't have time to just sit and be with Jesus. I've got this or that going on. I've got a social life to upkeep, a concert to make it to, a new Zelda game to play. That game looks awesome. Is anyone playing it? Let's go. I, we need to talk after. That looks great. Hear me out, I'm not being legalistic, I'm just, I'm asking a question. If you're truly honest, what does your life orbit around? What is the center of your solar system giving shape and direction to the rest of your life? Is it Jesus? Or is Jesus more like the moon who revolves around you? Following Jesus is not supposed to be a part-time gig or an extracurricular activity. Jesus can't be your side piece. He has to be the center of it all. To follow Christ, to be his disciple, means that Jesus is everything. Following Jesus doesn't make sense otherwise. If you've not already figured that out, if you've not already begun to notice that, it doesn't make sense as just a part of life. 
It only makes sense when it becomes not a part of who you are, but simply who you are. When it becomes the way we do life, when it becomes our life, the way we do relationships, the way we do work, all of it. In the book of Acts, before the church in Antioch coined the term Christian, followers of Jesus were simply called his disciples or followers of the way of Jesus. Christianity was not simply a new religion or a new set of theological beliefs or a new moral code to live by, but was a way of life with Jesus at the center of it. The bright star around which all of life revolves around. Giving all of life orientation, direction, and meaning. The thing through which everything else in life makes sense. Paul was a a true disciple of Jesus. He ate, slept, and breathed Messiah Jesus. For Paul, Jesus is the thing that gives meaning and direction to all of life, and therefore to live is Christ. To live is Christ. What's cool about this phrase is that it's actually pretty multifaceted and multi-layered. And we've only really begun to look at this first surface layer of meaning in the statement to live is Christ. But let's dig down a little bit deeper. And in order to do that, we're going to have to go all the way back to the beginning, to page one of the Bible. In Genesis 1, we have a creation account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the very first thing that God says in all of Scripture is, let there be light. And there was light. And for six days, God continues to bring forth light and life in his creation. The sun, moon, stars, plants, animals, birds, fish, man, woman. Yahweh, the God of Israel, the source of all life and light. Skip forward to the New Testament and John opens his gospel with a retelling of this creation story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made And in him was life, and the life was the light of all men. Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, the light and source of all life in the world. Again, like the sun in our solar system, once all of life revolves around Jesus, when he is the center, his radiance brings forth life and light. But that's not all that Genesis and John have in common. 
They both speak to the fact that Jesus is the foundation of all reality. The one who holds all things together and through whom all things were made. Tim Mackey once said, the ground and source of all reality that makes every part of our lived experience even real in the first place is a beautiful mind whose very essence is outpouring others-centered, life-giving, eternal love. And without that constant outpouring of love, we wouldn't even exist. To live is Christ. Because whether we acknowledge him as the center or not, he simply is. He is continually the source of life and light and all that exists. And to order our lives as such is simply to acknowledge that reality and order our lives in, a, in accordance with it. This is the second layer, and it's like a signpost pointing even further down to a third layer of the statement, to live is Christ. That not only is Christ the light and the life, the center of the universe, but all life points towards and is moving towards Christ. We looked at page one, let's look at the last page of the Bible now. In Revelation 22, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And Paul has already mentioned the day of Christ earlier in this letter, and we've already talked through that a good bit here together. The day of Christ, this coming reality that all of life is marching towards Jesus himself. For Paul, all of history and life points to and is moving towards the day of Christ. And in light of that, pun intended, it was bad, that was bad. In light of that, Paul's life, all of his goals, all that he did was oriented around the fact that he knows he's going to see Jesus face to face. Whether in death or when Jesus returns, whichever one comes first. Which is why Paul can confidently say to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Part two. For Paul, there was no fear in death. If all of life already points to and is moving towards seeing Christ face to face, a reality for each of us in this room then any day is just as good as any other day, right? We see this in Paul's explanation following verse 21. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, to live as Christ. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. To die is gain. Paul is saying to live is good. 
It means fruitful labor. It means to live in a way in which that awakens people to the reality of King Jesus. But to go and be with Christ, that is far better. To be with Christ, the source of all life and light, what is better than that? I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of verse 21. He says, this is his interpretation of what Paul is saying. He says, alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I'm his prize. Life versus more life, I can't lose. That's the way Eugene sees what Paul is saying here, and I think he's right. I think Eugene nailed this one on the head. That's just my personal conviction. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about seeing Jesus face to face and how different that it will be from what we can experience of God now. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, for now, we see as in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Mirrors in Paul's day were pretty different from the mirrors you and I are used to. It wasn't a pane of glass that like gives you a really crystal clear image. A mirror that Paul had in mind was more likely a piece of polished metal, probably bronze, reflective enough to give you an idea of what you look like or whatever it's reflecting, but it's hazy, it's imperfect. And this is how Paul describes the difference between what we can see and know of God now in this age as a hazy mirror compared to the crystal clear reality of when we see Jesus face to face. Now we know in part, but then, then we will know fully, even as we are already fully known. To die is gain because to die for those who are in Christ Jesus, if Jesus is Lord of your life, to die is to be fully united with him in a way that we can't even fully comprehend here and now. Timothy Keller was a prolific pastor, New York City church planter and Christian writer. And he was once quoted saying, all death can now do to Christians is to make their life infinitely better. Timothy Keller, he passed away a little over a week ago on May 18th. After having battled pancreatic cancer for years and the day before he passed, his son tweeted out this update. He said, over the past few years, He's at, past few days, he has asked us to pray with him often. He expressed many times through prayer his desire to go home and be with Jesus. His family is very sad because we all wanted more time, but we know he has very little at this point. In prayer, he said two nights ago, I'm thankful for all the people who have prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me, and I'm thankful for the time God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I cannot wait to see Jesus send me home. 
Friday morning when he was alone with his wife, his last words were, there's no downside to me leaving, not in the slightest. Tim, like Paul, knew that to die is gain because he would be united with Jesus. Death can only make our lives infinitely better. To die is gain, to be united with Christ, to be fully brought into his presence. To live is Christ, it's good, it is a precious gift. I mean, God looks at his creation and declares it is good, but for us to be with Christ doesn't compare. Like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, life versus more life, I can't lose. For Paul, what he saw in front of him was a win-win scenario. Both options are wins for Paul. Either way, Paul wins because Christ wins, and either way, the Roman Empire loses. Which brings us to part three, Christ magnified. In verse 20, Paul says that whether in life or in death, Christ will be honored in his body. That word honored more literally can be translated magnified or glorify or praise. For Paul, all of life is to magnify Christ and to die at the hand of the Roman emperor would also only serve to further magnify Christ. Paul, a sacrifice, Ooh, excuse me, got a dry throat. Paul, a sacrifice, a live sacrifice or a slain one. And this is a reality that's only made possible by the cross. It was on the cross, that place of apparent shame and weakness and defeat, where Christ was victorious. It was on the cross that Christ disarmed the forces of hell and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. In the early church, martyrdom, suffering for the sake of the gospel, was seen as a form of spiritual warfare of epic proportions taking on the forces of Satan himself by suffering with Christ. And through nonviolent response to trial, torture, and even execution. Martin Luther King Jr. once said that nonviolent resistance is a courageous confrontation of evil by the power of love. I believe this is what we witnessed in the nonviolent civil rights movements of the 50s and 60s in our nation. That the forces of evil were being confronted with the compassion of Christ. And Christ was always at the center and the heart of the movement. Dr. King was always very clear about that that the compassion of Christ was necessary for the movement to have any success. It was essential. And while King, he uh, attributes his methods of nonviolence to Gandhi, I would argue that Jesus, 
Paul, the apostles, and many saints were at it long before Gandhi was. But I imagine this posture of Paul's had to be infuriating for the Romans. I mean, there's no real way to defeat an enemy like Paul, to stop them, to stomp out what it is that they're preaching Because if you let them free, they're just going to go on and keep magnifying Christ through the lives of the saints lived out for Jesus. And if you punish them, then Christ is magnified through their suffering. There's no way to defeat an enemy like that. There's no way to defeat an enemy whose mission to magnify Christ is accomplished in life or in death. When your only weapon is fear. There's no way for Rome or for hell to defeat an enemy like that. Last week, we sang a song that speaks to this reality that Paul is getting at here in verse 21, where he's declaring that Christ be magnified in his body. And I thought that the, the lyrics of the bridge of this song are so spot on that I wanted to just read these over us and list, have you guys listen to the lyrics from this song. The bridge says, I won't bow to idols. I'll stand strong and worship you. And if it puts me in the fire, I will rejoice because you are there too. And I won't be formed by feelings, I'll hold fast to what is true. And if the cross brings transformation, then I will be crucified with you. Because death is just a doorway into resurrection life. And if I join you in your suffering, then I will join you when you rise. And when you return in glory with all the angels and the saints, my heart will still be singing. My song will be the same. Oh, Christ be magnified. There's a reason that Paul's statement here is so famous. It's the heartbeat of the Christian life. And it's the hope of Christian life. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So as we move forward into communion, I just have a couple questions that I'm going to invite you guys to reflect on. This first one is more so for yourself, just to reflect individually on your own, but I'm gonna invite you guys to circle up in groups of three or four and discuss question number two. Um, So that first question for yourself is, for you to live is what? And then discuss in groups, what does a life with Christ at the center of it look like lived out? So you guys can go ahead and circle up and do that. Feel free to hold on to your communion. I'll come back up and lead us through communion. But take a few minutes to just debrief and discuss and reflect together. I'd love to hear maybe two or three people share what were some things in your group that discussing the second question of what does a life with Christ at the center look like? I'd love to hear just some, some thoughts or anything that encouraged you from your discussions. Uh, yeah, maybe two or three people willing to share. Stephen. Yeah, I was thinking back to 
diocese part, and there's definitely an era of physical stuff that Paul's talking about. Paul's had a, a long career of dying to himself. Yeah. Um, it really embodies what Jesus talked about in Mark, where he said, uh, you guys take up your cross and follow me, and for whoever will lose their life will gain it, and whoever you know, gains it yeah. really loses everything. Yep. Uh, so he's really done embodying and putting it into practice. Uh, for me, I kind of feel like, what does it take to get there? It is that daily, that daily practice that I'm doing in order to kind of sacrifice it to myself. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, Stephen. I mean, I would 100% agree that Paul can be so comfortable in that. This is kind of what Stephen was sharing. He can be so comfortable in saying to die is Christ because if you look at the invitation of Jesus, it really, part of the call of the Christian life is to practice death every single day um, in dying to ourselves in very small little ways every day. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Anyone else? Yeah. The thing that popped into my head is the idea of, yeah, like having to do it over, like, day to day to day, just like mm-hmm. kind of that spiritual feeding of, like, oh, let me, do, let me center my life again. Let me do that. Yeah. It's like, because we're humans and not perfect, we often get really distracted. I think we all agree that it's like, we know the right answer for the first question, but we don't always look like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's why I feel like over the last several years, the idea of practice has really grown. And I think that's kind of what you're speaking to of every day, just practicing living into Christ being the center. Yeah. Um, something else that she said earlier was that uh, spirit, good spiritual practice is like eating and drinking. Because uh, I think, you know, when, when we don't eat or drink for a while, we get irritated, we get angry, and we make mistakes. And I think that when you don't spiritually feed yourself, you get angry, you get irritated, you make mistakes. Um, and so I think it does have to be as consistent as eating and drinking. You get spiritually hangry. Yeah. I love that. I'm, that's great. We're going to take that and run with it. Being spiritually hangry. That's awesome. Maybe one more if anyone else has something they want to share. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, So if you haven't already taken communion, I'll invite you guys to do that. We take communion.